0: Or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. Yo, people, Anna David with After Party Pod. After Party Pod is a part of After Party Magazine, a website determined to change the face and get rid of the stigma around addiction and recovery. Now, After Party is a part of RehabReviews.com, the world's largest resource for treatment centers across the globe. You can go there to see if your rehab stay could be free. Go to RehabReviews.com slash benefits dash check. What else can you do there, you may ask? You can get a Recover Girl t-shirt. Go to RehabReviews.com slash Recover Girl shirt. Sorry, guys. Anyway, you'd know all of this if you were signed up for our newsletter. What are you doing? Go sign up. RehabReviews.com slash newsletter dash sign dash up. Now here's the show. Welcome to the after party. Just getting started You can teach an old dog new ways And not just on Saturdays. Hey guys, it's Anna David A little bit under the weather, Anna David um, Very rare occurrence I, I started to get a cold I woke up with a sore throat maybe four days ago And I thought, ugh have a cold and I kind of like it because it's so different than the way I normally feel. So, I mean, I God bless the people around me cuz I'll talk about it as if it's this cool exciting thing and nobody thinks a cold is cool and exciting except me. And um and now it's lasted lasted 4 days and um it, it confuses me a little bit. This morning I woke up coughing, you know, like the days when I used to smoke, pack of cigarettes a day. And, and I thought, you know how when you wake up in the morning, you feel the absolute worst and you go, oh, well, I mean, I'm destroyed today. There's no way I can do anything. And then you kind of stand up and you realize that was just waking up. That happened. I'm now fine. But do you see, do you hear that, that frog in my throat that's kind of sexy? Yeah. I'm not putting it on for you. And so, what else do I want to tell you? Uh, big day today. For, this is going to be out of date. Supreme Court ruled uh, that uh, same-sex marriage is is legal. Why are people texting me while I'm talking to you? Um, I'm obsessing over the fact that Obama was on Mark Barron's podcast last week. I can't remember if. We, I talked to you about that in the last recording, but um, wow. And it worked. It, it, whatever happened, I, I listened to it and I and I woke up the next morning and I th- sort of thought, it's so weird. Obama and I are kind of friends now. He was just, he was so great on it. I'm a Obama fan anyway. Um, so there was something else I wanted to say. Oh, two things that will not be breaking news by the time you listen to this we have started an after party reading series series um which will not be that serious at if you are in la you are cordially invited to come if you are not in la you're cordially invited to fly out for it sure july 9th at muse cafe which is uh on la brea and 8th street i think that's considered hollywood maybe west hollywood anyway you'll find it and uh Danielle Stewart, Tracy Chimala, Sevasti Yami, Amber Tozer are all going to be reading slash telling stories about, uh, their funniest and best pieces from the site. And we're going to do it every month. So this is our first foray into that. I used to have a storytelling show called true tales of lust and love. Go download that. Um, if you want, but, but so this is great. I'm super excited about it. Um, the other thing is that I hope this will have happened by the time you listen to this. Danielle and I are talking about doing today recording something called After Party Cuts, a video series Well, where we'll talk about stories on the site, but in a fun way. Um, we I actually announced this on a previous podcast and it never happened because we're doing a lot of other work around here, the less fun work a lot of the time. So anyway, we we have... A hard date of today to do this. Let me talk about today's guest. It's Dr. Alan Berger, who is, let's talk about him. He has been sober 44 years. He looks 44, so that's weird. Um, And he's a PhD in private practice. And he's written numerous books about recovery I'm holding one of these you can't see that um called 12 stupid things that mess up recovery avoiding relapse through self-awareness and right action and um he told me that that it's sold 50,000 copies and counting do you guys know how many books that is it supposedly takes 5,000 to be on the bestseller list if they're all kind of bought in a certain week. But yeah. So this, and this is, you know, top 20 on Amazon in certain category. I mean, whatever. It's massively successful. And, and the way that I, ugh, do I talk about this in the episode? I hate when I make a big deal about something in an intro and then I realize it's totally redundant with something uh, I told the guest in the episode, but I heard him speak at a meeting and I'm like, who is this brilliant man? And, Somebody slipped in the meeting and said, that was so great, Dr. Berger. And so my friend who was sitting next to me, who's, you know, hopefully listening, he's a fan of the podcast. He Googles that and, you know, turns his phone to me and says, oh, this is who this guy is. He's author, PhD. So, um, so we knew that. And and so I asked him to be on the podcast. That was months ago. He's a very busy man. And he drove all the way from Westlake Village, which only means something to you if you are in L.A. And if you are in L.A., that's exciting because you're coming to our first reading series, right? Anyway, we had such a good conversation. It's nice because I haven't had an expert Ah, well I guess you could say Pat Allen is in recovery and also you know a therapist who sees clients and and whatnot but but who who struggled with addiction who talks about it and uh, is able and is brilliant so he's able to uh, apply a lot of psychoanalysis psychoanalytic theories in terms of how he talks about recovery. Such a good conversation. So uh, you can find him online at ABPHD. You can find his books on Amazon. And he was just, he tells me at the end of the episode about his CDs and other things. So you'll hear that at the end of the episode right now. I'm just going to give them to you. Dr. Alan Berger. I first started taking drugs by chewing blocks of hash.
1: Oh my God. I think my copy has like blood stains on
2: it from shooting up while reading it.
0: Party animal. I hate to say that because that makes me sound Paris Hilton. I was on the, as I call it, the Autobahn to nowhere. I'm very lucky because would you have wanted to have a celebrity junkie for a dad? Okay, so yeah, why not start by talking about how well your book is doing?
1: (laughs) We can do that.
0: So uh, I asked, so you weren't bragging. (laughs) Over 50,000 copies sold on 12 Stupid Things people do to mess up their recovery?
1: Yes, yes, it's, it's really been received well. And this is the kind of book that gets momentum through word of mouth. Yeah. Because when people read it, they really walk away with some very, very practical ideas about what they can do to strengthen their recovery. You know, we kind of go through the back door, we say 12 stupid things that mess up recovery. Right. But what we're really talking about is what do you need to do to really, really ground your recovery in some solid psychological ideas? Right. And that's, that's been my life's work.
0: If you had to summarize in less than a minute what the 12 things are that people do to mess up their recovery, how would you do that?
1: Um, I, I think the best way to say it is, is people have overgeneralize certain ideas about what they need to do and um, that overgeneralization creates a lot of problems so you know like thinking you got to be perfect that's Mm -hmm. a great example Mm -hmm. right if i think i have to be perfect i put so much pressure on myself and then when i don't live up to that standard i end up hating myself i end up putting myself down I have a heck of a time. So one of the things that I try to do is help people get a more realistic right, right standard for themselves yeah. and expectation for themselves. And that's what I'm hoping to do in 12 Stupid Things.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I will say that to people. Well, I mean, I definitely say it to sponsees, but also people who tell me, writers who tell me they have writer's block. And this goes for addicts and non-addicts. Okay writer's block is only perfectionism yeah. because if you understand that your first what you write at first isn't going to not be good yeah. you don't have writer's block exactly you know
1: then you just go with the process yeah. you see where it takes you that's what happened with 12 Stupid Things for me is I had some general ideas but I think you've experienced as a writer is the book starts to reveal itself to you yes. as you're writing it yes. you know you've, hear, you've heard many great artists say that Right. you know I start carving this stone, and what's inside of it starts to speak to me. Well, that's the same experience I have in writing. I'm imagining the same experience you have.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I used to get, when I was doing novels, the best way I'm not a brainstorm at the computer person I'm a just let it flow out person Mm -hmm. yeah but then I would go and get massages this is great advocacy for (laughs) self-indulgent and it was like my whatever you want to call it my you know subconscious my little brain my big brain as opposed to my little brain would open up and I would suddenly have all these ideas and I would have to rush out of the massage and just like jot everything down.
1: Well, you know, what you're saying is, and there's really some great solid neuropsychology behind that, Our brain is always working on these issues. Yeah. And see, you know, that's what they captured in The Secret. You know, I'm not a new age guy. but But the neuropsychology behind it is you put something in your consciousness and say, look, I want to write this book. Well, guess what? You're writing it all the time. Right. You may not be sitting down in front of your computer or even having a stream of consciousness, but you're constantly working on it. And that is what becomes revealed to us.
0: But then there are those millions of people that are sort of quote constantly working on it that, that never, never sit down at the it. computer. Well,
1: see, that's that's the procrastination, and what yeah. is that caused by? Like you said, perfectionism. Perfectionism. Because yeah. I got to do it perfect. Yeah. Oh my God! If I don't do it perfect, I'm going to hate myself. So that's why we don't even take the risk. Is because what people are doing is avoiding that self hate.
0: Right. That's interesting. Do you think all procrastination oh, yeah. is perfectionism? Every
1: every person. And so an interesting. interesting thing I do, so let's take this into my office now. Yeah. So what I would do is if I was working with someone who's procrastinating, I would have them separate themselves.
2: Uh-huh. So I do
1: a lot of what's called the shuttle technique. Okay. Because it's, see, mental health is defined as a coordination of all that we are. Right. So you've got a whole committee that lives inside. Oh, you yeah. hear this in program yeah, all yeah, the yeah. time, right? God, I got a committee in my head. It's driving me nuts. Well, it's only driving you nuts because the committee's not working together. So in the kind of therapy I do, gestalt therapy, what we do is try to get the committee to work together. So one way to do that is to get people to separate the different parts of themselves. So let's say I was working with you in, in your procrastinating writing. So I would have the writer... Talking to the procrastinator
2: mm-hmm. and out have loud? that
1: out loud. Mm-hmm. So you'd start on one side, the mm-hmm. part that wants to write, and say, "Listen, why don't you, you know, get out of the way so I can write?" Then I'd have you switch over to chair and now be the procrastinator and answer.
0: Okay, wait, wait, wait. Now I want free therapy because <laughs> that's not at all my issue. My issue, right, but we'll I want yours. you to. Let's yeah, do yours. Yeah, let's do yours. See mine. Let's do so yours. mine is that I can. Um, well, a exercise addiction. It works for me. So hold on. I'm, I'm going to get back yeah. to that. Um, and but it's related. Never stop accomplishing. So it is. It is very pleasant for me to accomplish. Yes. So I do not like sitting home. Right. I will read, but I, I, I reading during the day. Oh my God, that feels like such a waste of time unless I have to something yeah. I have to read. Um, sitting and watching a movie. Ugh.
2: Yeah.
1: So you're driven, is what you're saying. You're yeah, so driven.
0: But it's a, underneath it, it is for sure anxiety.
1: Yes. Okay, right. It's got a, something's driving the, the, the drivenness, knee. right? So what, you, what I would do... But if wait, we were, it, go doctor, ahead. let uh, me
0: just give you one last fact. <laughs> it, oh, I, I do a double recording, so we're all good, but I just want to make sure that, just in case... Right. Bad luck with recorders, but we're doing perfectly. Um, what, it, I enjoy it so much... That I don't believe it's unmanageable.
1: Well, you enjoy it so much, but there's a part of you that questions it, or else you wouldn't be bringing it up right now. See, it's just so And that maybe is a little part of you. Right. But there's a part of you that says, how come there's not some room for me doing nothing? How come it's not okay for me to just hit the pause button... Mm-hmm. Check out for a while and relax. Mm-hmm. So what we would do if we were doing a session
2: mm-hmm.
1: is in the one chair would be the driver, and in the other chair, the other part of you that's saying, hey, is there any room for us not to do this all the time mm-hmm. and to see what would happen with that conversation? Now, it would be interesting, but tell me, what do you think the driver would say to you? So if you're on that side, part that's got to be driven, what what would that be, the message that side would be given to the other side?
0: Well, it would say this feels so good
1: I feel so good
0: and um, I feel so good doing this and what's the harm
1: okay now let's switch to the other side what does that side say to you
0: so the other side says well this well it might feel great how do you know that it wouldn't feel better to do nothing
1: right and then go back to the other side now be the driver again
0: driver says I've tried doing nothing and what happened it's not great
1: yeah back to the other side
0: um well, uh, okay. Well, I, I do think there's something behind what it is. So maybe the, the non-driven side can say that. Oh,
2: I'd say it. What, um,
0: I think this comes from, you know, you know, as always, something that happened between the ages of zero and 12, which is that your dad infused the idea that you are not worthwhile unless you're accomplishing something.
1: What does the driver say to that?
0: Maybe that wasn't so bad. I get way more done than lots of people.
1: Okay. What does the other side say to that?
0: What if you work yourself into the ground? Yeah. What if you burn out? What if it is not healthy?
2: Yeah.
1: And has it been not healthy sometimes? Never. Never. Okay. So what does the other side say to that? that. It's never been not healthy.
0: Um, so far
1: so far yeah. alright so this is what I become aware of when you do that
0: Okay.
1: see the whole idea is, is that you have to be a certain way to be loved mm-hmm. and to be okay mm-hmm. that's the problem in it mm-hmm. you see it doesn't leave any room for being it's always about doing it. Yeah. so you're out of balance and see that is causing you problems you may not be aware of it but I will bet that you're out of balance in some areas of your life Mm -hmm. because of that. So see, this work is about coming into balance with yourself. Um, You know, I talk a lot about emotional sobriety. So Mm -hmm. what is emotional sobriety? Emotional sobriety is finding some balance, not just in your life. That's important, too. You know, and that's what stuff like Recovery 2.0 is all about. You know, Tommy Rosen, all that stuff.
0: Previous podcast, yeah.
1: Right? But... What I'm talking about is finding that balance between these different parts of yourself. Right. So that there's room within you for doing and accomplishing, which is great, but also for just being and being okay with that. You see, because if you're not, if that doesn't, if that's not a possibility, then what happens is now you've decreased your options. You must always be doing one thing. And there's no room for anything else. And sometimes you may need just to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Sometimes it may be important for you to just back off a little bit and to be with yourself and mm-hmm. see what that means. Now, what happens with some people, when that starts to happen, is when they sit with themselves in the way I'm talking about, some pain starts to surface. Mm-hmm. Some sadness, some grief, some anxiety. And see, so a lot of times, and I don't know if you... You know, we've just met a couple times now. Mm-hmm. But see, that's what I would be interested in, is to see what happens when you let go of letting this part run the show mm-hmm. and you start to allow yourself to spend some time with this side of you, the being side. See, I'd call that the doing side. Yeah. I'd call this the being side.
0: Yeah, the human doing over human being. Yeah, right? Okay, and I know I sound very defensive. Well, but... But
1: get defensive. Come but on. But
0: let me go tell you this. I am somebody who... Um, Uh, this is strange. When I get depressed, and I definitely do, Uh um, I don't, I mean, this is related, I don't take to my bed and watch television and eat. Right,
1: probably not. What do you do?
0: I'm super high functioning, exactly the same as normal, but I'm crying and talking about it and doing things that my therapist says are great to do, but but I don't believe that I'm hiding sadness and discomfort from myself Because I can't help but feel it when I'm in that. I
1: got you. So what if you experimented with just laying in bed once? See, yeah. that's all I'm saying. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. is, You've got to open up all these possibilities. Because while that way may work a lot of times, you also may need to just lay in bed and give yourself that possibility. But see, what you've done is the way you've organized your personality you've limited your possibilities. Yeah. When you limit your possibilities, then you've limited your ability to cope. Right. You get that? You sort see the relationship? of. Sort of. should I explain it.
0: Well, if I've how have I limited my ability to cope? You can't lay can't... in bed. You can't lay in bed. But it's not an
1: option for you.
0: But if I'm It's not an option. You just said it's not an option. I won't lay in bed. So, but arguably, I could feel better faster if I did that. I don't know what you
1: would feel. I'm not saying you'd feel better faster. I'm just saying that it's an option. It's an option, and when you don't have all those options available, then you limit your ability to cope. Because maybe one time, laying in bed may be the best thing for you. But you're not going to experiment with that because that's not a possibility in the way you've organized your personality.
0: I've tried.
1: Well, okay, what happens?
0: Well, when I, when I went through a breakup, I was very sad. I get sad for yeah. short bursts usually. So, so sad, especially at first. And I said to myself, okay, it was a Sunday that I was really feeling it. You can um, just lie in bed. Mm-hmm. and, and so don't go to your meeting. you gave yourself the
1: permission. Don't go to you your meeting. You didn't go to your meeting. Hold
0: on. Don't go to your dance class. Go to your meeting, come back Get in bed.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, I went to the 9 a.m. meeting where we met. Possibly this was the day you spoke. Who knows? And I didn't feel better. No, it wasn't. It couldn't have been the day you spoke. I didn't feel better. I said, I said, go home, get in bed. I'd get in bed, and then I'm like, I really want to go to my dance class. Yes. I'm going to go. So I'd given myself permission, mm-hmm. but I just... And I was feeling my sadness all over yeah. anyway. But here, so if we were in therapy together and I wasn't yeah. getting this for free, you would possibly say to me, can you just try 10 minutes a day? No,
1: I wouldn't do that. Okay. What I would do is I would have you talk to your sadness okay, and to deal with the sad part of you and okay. see what happens. See, one of the things, one way you've coped, and I look, I'm... I don't want to take this anything away from you. If that's working for you, fine. I just want to open up new possibilities. Mm Because that's what, to me, recovery is about, right? Mm -hmm. Learning is about the discovery of new possibilities. So there may be another way to deal with your sadness other than by mobilizing and energizing yourself. And see, that's one way you comfort yourself. And that's fine. I want you to have other ways. Mm -hmm. That's all. So I'd like you to be able to talk to that sad
2: Mm-hmm. Part of you mm-hmm.
1: to deal with her, to embrace her, to comfort her in some other ways, and not just mobilize her,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Mm-hmm. Because then that just <laughs> opens up. Now, as I talk, I see. You're,
2: I don't like it.
1: I know no, you. My God, you, yeah, oh. I wish we could see your face on this podcast. Yeah, and, yeah like your grimace and your, oh,
0: No, I'll do. Uh, i do it. Yeah, but it's.
1: But see, you don't see it as. See. For you, nurturing is mobilizing. Mm -hmm. And what I would like you to consider is that there may be some other dimensions of nurturing that the way you've organized yourself doesn't allow you to appreciate, doesn't allow you to experience, doesn't allow you to value. So in a relationship... Okay, go on. It does, but you just said it doesn't.
0: No, I think that if my, my busyness when I was sad pushed all of those feelings away then that would be true but it doesn't
1: i hear at that all. see so that's that's what i said is it helps you cope i'm just saying there's other way yeah. i didn't say it didn't help you yeah. cope i didn't say you were running away from it but I, I just said there's another way see. are you glad
0: you're not my therapist <laughs> no, no i'm
1: not
2: glad I
1: <laughs> or not one way or the other i think but you see what i'm saying yeah. is that you need it's not about that that's not working
0: yeah okay there it's are a, options there's, options
1: you don't have that here yeah. You, yeah. you, you've got a couple options right now, and they all have to do with this mobilization of your energy. I'm just saying, and that's one way of coping. Look, it's a good one. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I wouldn't want to ever see you take, get that taken away. Right. But I'd want the other possibilities. You follow me? Of, I do. Of I more do. of a nourish, what might be less active and more, what I would say, comforting
0: mm-hmm.
1: and nourishing. Mm-hmm. I'd want you to have that possibility.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm open to it.
1: Well, let's see. Let the
0: record show I'm smiling.
1: <laughs> you are smiling. Now we can show that.
0: <laughs> um, so, getting back to you, I'm not swish. Sh- oh my God, I'm not. I'm like stumbling on <laughs> my words. I'm not shifting because I'm uncomfortable, but because we have to get to this. Okay. So, uh, you have been sober for how many decades?
1: Well, this summer I'll celebrate 44 years.
0: Jesus. And you look amazing. Can we talk about that? Well, thank Do you. Do people say, oh, yes, did you have your
1: first Yeah, what did you get, sober when you were in yeah. diapers, or what happened yeah. to you?
0: Um, how old yeah. were, were you? Okay. Well,
1: I was 19 years old. Yeah, wow. I was just back from Vietnam. I'm a Vietnam veteran. Yeah,
0: I just read that this morning. You, right. I don't think you mentioned that when you spoke.
1: I probably, you know, didn't. I, sometimes I don't even remember what I say when I speak. You, yeah. know, you have that experience, yeah, too. You're yeah, so yeah. present. Um I went into Marine Corps at 17
2: mm-hmm.
1: to really escape. I was running away, running away from myself. Where were you from? I was grew up in Chicago. Okay. Midwest.
2: Okay. Um,
1: I was on the north side, northwest side of Chicago. And, you know, my dad died when I was young. I We didn't deal with things in my family. We didn't address anything. I didn't know how to cope with the pain I was experiencing. It was a tremendous amount of pain. This man meant everything to mm-hmm. me. He, you know... I can cry when I talk about him. He was this—he was the kind of dad that just got down on his knees and played with me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He got his hands dirty, took me out to the garage, loved being a father. Mm-hmm. And I love that he loved being with
2: mm-hmm.
1: me. You know, it was that kind of an experience. So when he died, man, my world was rocked and... I dealt with it by shutting down. I didn't want to feel anything. I felt betrayed. I felt betrayed by life, by God. My mom, I don't know why I blamed her, but I did. You know, it was crazy. I was 11 years old. Um, A couple months after that, I picked up my first drink, and it worked. You know, it made me feel alive again, and I was dead. Mm -hmm. I had died with my dad, or part of me had died with Mm -hmm. my dad so that just opened up the door to my teenage alcoholism i was a blackout drinker i was drinking more than not Mm -hmm. um not going to school you know showing up to school first period disappearing i mean i had 60 truances my first year i don't even know how many days you're in class but and then probably another 40 absences i mean i was gone all the time because i was out getting drunk
0: and you weren't doing drugs
1: Uh, Drugs came later.
0: Okay.
1: They came when I was 17. Um, So this was back in the mid-60s, and there weren't a lot of drugs in my neighborhood. We were all drinkers. Mm -hmm. Old-style beer, a lot of beer drinking going on. Some hard liquor came Mm -hmm. later on as Mm -hmm. we got older, but most of it was beer drinking. We'd get a couple cases of beer, go to a spot in a golf course and sit and get drunk, get lost, couldn't find ourselves (laughs) our way out of the golf course, stuff like that, you know?
0: wasn't it fun back then?
1: Well, I thought so. Yeah. I thought so. I believe so.
0: I mean, I look back on that period. I started around the same time, and yeah, I was doing yeah. To Escape, but it was fun. I oh, remember.
1: Listen, it was fun, but see, I never had the consciousness about what else was going on. Right. You know what I mean? It's like I didn't want to look at those other issues.
0: Sorry, I just had a, a yep, yeah, just had a panic. It's good, it's good. We're all good. You didn't want to look at those issues, no, I which didn't. is why I was too, it was too much pain. It's
1: too fine. much pain. I shut down the pain. I didn't want to feel. I didn't want to feel anything but feel good. That's where the drinking worked for me. I just didn't want. Now, did I feel good all the time? No. I mean, when you wake up with the hangover, you're not feeling good. You know, I had a lot of blackouts where I was drinking to a point where I, not to a point, but I drank, and then I'd have the experience of not knowing what had happened the night before. Mm -hmm. And my friends tell me, you know, you're a real idiot, or you got in a fight with uh, Bill Cover. What Mm -hmm. were you thinking? Mm Cover like, kills people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, stuff like this. I mean, that's what was going on for me. So, yeah, you know, I felt like it was fun.
0: And then, so you enrolled. Did you come from a military family?
1: My father served in World War II. Mm Mm-hmm. He was in uh, the army. He was in Sicily. He received the uh, Bronze Star for an act of bravery while he was over there. So um, my dad had served. I'm not aware of anybody else that had served in the family up to that point in time. So that was in the back of my mind. I yeah. wanted to be pr- you know, be like my dad. I wanted my dad to be proud of me. Mm-hmm. But you know, I picked the Marine Corps. Okay. The few, the proud, the Marines. Yeah. Right? Do you see the signs now? It says, "We don't accept." Applications. Oh, we only take commitments there's or
0: There's a so, billboard right office. Yeah, Same thing. So,
1: you know, I, I was going to get in the best. I yeah, mean, yeah, it wasn't yeah. just good enough for me to go into the Army. Right. I had to be a Marine now. Yeah. I don't swim. It's not a good idea to try to become a Marine when you're not a good swimmer.
2: So, what happened? <laughs>
1: well, I joined at 17. My mom had to sign the papers. I went in, I went to boot camp. That's where I got sober for the first time because I went through withdrawals. I was drinking every day. Wow. And so boot camp was a nightmare, but you add on top of it, withdrawn from alcohol. Yeah. I had a double nightmare on my hands, and I didn't even know it. See, yeah. that's, I wasn't even aware of these kinds of things. After boot camp was over, several of my friends had volunteered for Vietnam. I volunteered, and I was sent to Vietnam when I was 18. And then in Vietnam, I started to really experiment with drugs other than alcohol. And I came back with a very serious alcohol slash drug problem. Heroin? I experimented with heroin while I was over there. I didn't, thank God, get to the point where I was uh, shooting it yet. But that would have happened. That Mm -hmm. was coming. Mm -hmm. Because I was now starting to experiment with shooting barbiturates. So that's where my bottom was. I abscessed. I shot some barbiturates I missed, or the guy that shot me missed. My arm swelled up. All right, stop that. So then I uh, came back from Vietnam, got busted on my way to my final duty station by some LAX uh, police officers. And they didn't arrest me, but they told me they were going to turn me in.
0: You had heroin on you.
1: I had uh, marijuana LSD um, speed on me. And so I thought I'm going to the brig, and I didn't want to go to the brig. I'd rather go to a you know, jail than to the brig. Mm-hmm. So um, what happened was is that when I got to base, I tried to figure out, well, how can I manipulate the situation yeah. and get out of the trouble, right? Yeah. So I acted like I wanted help. I went to my first sergeant and said, hey, Top, look at my arm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I need help. Um, I came back from Vietnam. I've got this problem. And he looked at me and says, Berger, you are one lucky guy. He says, three days ago, the Marine Corps decided that we're going to give you guys amnesty.
2: Really? There's a
1: drug exemption program, so you're not going to be prosecuted. We're not going to throw you in a brig, but we're sending you treatment. Wow. So I was the third Marine admitted to this program on the third day that this program existed. That's amazing. Or came into existence. Yeah, it was amazing. Saved my life.
0: And that's when you got sober and you haven't so had a That sense. was
1: 1971. Yes,
0: and and what was this treatment like?
1: They had no idea what they were doing, but they knew that, and so they turned to the twelve-step community, That's and they great. brought in some young people that had um, received um, help from this woman called Flobird, who was this AA guru. She's this fifty-year-old hippie lady mm-hmm. walking around in a bikini all the time, wearing Birkenstocks, long yes, hair down yeah. to her down to her butt, you know, and Very she 70s. just. Very 70s, right? You know, picture 70s, look at her. She was it. I mean, she was like the, uh, you know, a great example, you know, an icon of that time. And uh, she helped all these young people find the 12-step way of life.
2: That's amazing. A lot of them.
1: And she was an amazing woman. She She had that kind of earthy knowledge and wisdom that she imparted. And people saw it in her and saw that she really loved them. And that's what really did it. I mean, she loved people. And they knew it. And, you know, when you get loved unconditionally like that, you just grow.
0: Yeah. And
1: these people were growing around her. All of this recovery was taking place. And back in the 70s, there weren't a lot of young people in the program. So yeah. this group of young people, they were called Flowbirds Birds. Uh,
2: where, that cr- where was this? This
1: was on the island of Oahu. Wow. So there was a, like 30, 40 young people that were just, you know, it was like the... The Pacific Group in on the island of Oahu. There was a but not follow, that, but not rigid. It yeah. was hippie.
0: Yeah, it was
1: a hippie Pacific Group. She was
0: Clancy.
1: She was like a, a hippie Clancy. Yeah, but would be fun to make hippie into Clancy into a hippie, wouldn't it? I did yeah. a lot of. I, you don't think he? That's all. Um, but so look, yeah. so they came. So two Toms came to talk to us on mm-hmm. Tuesday nights. They set up an an opportunity to come in. They called it the drug rap session. Mm -hmm. So they would come and spend two hours sharing their stories. And I was blown away. I was blown away at the freedom that Tom had. And Tom M., Tom McCall, he doesn't mind me sharing his name, he became my sponsor. And I was, like I said, I was so moved by the fact that he wasn't um, in bondage of his self, mm-hmm. right? That he had found a freedom inside and I wanted that. That's why I drank. Really. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I used I wanted to be free.
0: And so, when did you make your way to LA?
1: Um, I had another year to do in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. So I uh, finished in 1972. I uh, was given an honorable discharge. Mm-hmm. Um, they tempted to keep me in. They gave me a promotion just before I left but I wanted to go to school. So I went back to Chicago, 72, 73, had to clean up, make a lot of amends. Mm -hmm. I heard a lot of people back then. Mm -hmm. And then I got an offer to come out here into California in 1973 to work at uh, one of the first programs that worked with the children of alcoholics and the families some Navy personnel at the Western Institute of Human Resources in Long Beach, California.
0: And you were just a high school graduate at that point. i was uh,
1: high school dropout. i was I was a high school dropout with a GED, and I was in my second year in college when I moved out here. And then I started going to Cal State Long Beach, and Long Beach led to UC Davis, where I got my PhD.
0: My mom, taught, my mom got her PhD there. Oh, look at that! Yeah, huh? mine's, hers was in English, and then yeah. she was an adjunct professor there for a long oh, time.
1: Oh, it's a gr- great campus. I yeah. learned a lot at this school. helped. In fact, when I applied there, it was an interesting story. I, you know, I share with everybody about my recovery because yeah. I want to be open. If you're uncomfortable with me, then that's not a place I want to be. So I put in my application that I'm a recovering alcoholic addict. Right. So the psychiatrist is interviewing me. He says, did you at all think about putting that down, that that might be detrimental to your application? And I said to him, look, if you are uncomfortable with me being in recovery, then this isn't the place I want to be. Yeah, wow. I need to be open about it. It's a real important part of my life. It saved my life. Yeah. And so if you guys can't handle that you know, with me being open about that, then this isn't this program for me.
0: And boy, did they take you in at that point. Yeah,
1: You know, it was like, wow, this this guy is really committed to his journey.
0: And um, so you got your PhD, you're living up north, and then you came back. Came
1: back to Southern California and continued to, um, at that point, then I decided to open up a clinic uh, that would address stage two recovery issues. So stage two recovery is after you put the plug in the jug, break the bonds of your addiction, you're no longer struggling with your cravings or your desire to drink and use, you know, that that obsession's been lifted. Then you move into stage two recovery, which is really trying to now rebuild your life. And for me, all through my recovery, I did a lot of therapy. Yeah. So I really saw the value of really rigorously working the steps, but at the same time, getting in front of someone yeah. and being vulnerable and starting to look at the issues that I needed to look at and started to address. And so that's what my recovery was based on. Mm-hmm. You know, it had those two foundations as well as you know, then working with others, going to school, educating myself and stuff like that.
0: Question, do you believe that people uh, can get sober and work on those issues without sitting down with a therapist?
1: I think it's possible to some degree, but not to the depth that you're going to get into. Mm -hmm. The stuff, the work I did, like, let's take my dad, for example. I had a ton of grief. You know that. Yeah. You can hear me talk about it. You hear my voice change when I talk about him. You know, I missed him a lot. And I didn't want to open that pain up. Right. And right after I got, I was probably three months into my recovery, I went to a weekend marathon. Okay. See, back in the 70s, we were doing a lot of this human potential, right. these weekend encounter groups, right? So that and
0: wasn't A.A.? That wasn't that 12, was A.A.? Then? No, it was okay. just a
1: weekend marathon yeah. with this guy. This, his name was Sasha from the University of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And um, first exercise he did is he said, everybody close your eyes and think of someone you need to say goodbye to. Well, you know who popped up for me. Yeah. My dad. Yeah. So... Um, He heard me share my story briefly, threw a pillow in front of me, said, say goodbye to your father. Well, I don't know many sponsors that would do that. (laughs) And I'll tell you, I needed that. He invited me, but the support he gave me through the work and through helping me open up my soul and open up my grief and really draining that was unbelievable. I worked about three hours on my pain and grief that night and at the end of it i remember the last exercise we did i was laying on the ground and the room was padded Mm -hmm. because you know we're on bean bags and this is just how you set up these weekend marathons Mm -hmm. in this kind of a room and i was doing some pounding i was pounding my fist kicking my feet i was throwing a tantrum and i think i was raging at god probably at that time and at the end of that i said everything i needed to say to god about what i was feeling And he says, okay, now open up your eyes. Unbelievable. You know, I drop acid and I get this sense of clarity and, like, I was totally connected to the world and to the universe and to wisdom. And at this moment, I was more connected to life and more alive than I had ever been. Wow. It was unbelievable. At that moment, I was hooked on recovery. (laughs) So
2: alive.
0: You know, um, just one thing, that one of my experiences, I did that sort of therapy. I went to Meadows for their survivors. Mm -hmm. One of the worst experiences of my life.
1: Oh, what happened?
0: Um, I just hated it. I didn't respond. To me, I'm like, oh, I'm going to hit a felt bat on a chair, and it's going to make me get out my rage at my dad? Are you kidding? Yeah. And I was the one person who... Didn't really respond it, it survivors. You you're in it with people who are in their third week of Treatment treatment, which is a terrible idea. Yeah, so I was I don't know nine years sober And so they're feeling for the first time I've been in therapy since I was 16 blah blah yeah. blah and I just and the and the leader And I do call him a leader not a therapist because that was the way it was done told me at the end I needed to check into Meadows to deal with my issues
1: um, well, see, this is a problem I have. See, I'm writing a new book for Hazleton called 12 More Stupid Things. Yeah. And in this book, the first stupid thing that I'm writing about right now, I'm right in the middle of fact what I was waiting for you. I was working on my book out. I did note
0: the, that you had your computer. <laughs> yes. I wasn't going to accuse you. When we were doing my therapy, I was going to be like, you can't stop either.
1: No, I was really kind of trying to fit it in. But you're right. I can't. Mm-hmm. I, that's one thing I do. Um, I'm, the first one is believing that there's one path. Yeah, to getting and staying sober. Right. And see a guy like that, that is putting his idea about what you're supposed to do on you and not staying tuned into you. That's what we got to get cleaned up in this field. Yeah, it's not good. It's destructive. It's harmful. It makes people lose trust. It loses credibility in a program. See, so that kind of rigidity I am so against. Yeah. Because it's not you. You just, that didn't work for you. And he was
2: so shaming. Yeah,
1: see, so that's the other side of it is that when a patient doesn't do what we want, we make them feel bad about themselves. Yeah. Oh, great. That's wonderful. Yeah. You know, you see, so these are the things. And what I'm trying to help a client do now is not take that crap yeah. from someone. Yeah. And so what I'm wanting to do in this first chapter is help someone really get grounded in nobody can tell you what you need. Yeah, That's up to you. But this is the real important part of it. But you've got to learn how to pay attention yeah. to yourself so you know what you need. Because a lot of us desensitize ourselves. We don't want to feel. We don't want to know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was luckily sober enough yeah. To get that it was this guy's problem. Yeah,
1: good for you. But I
0: was still angry. Of and course. That
1: well, help. look, it, it, he polarized with you. Yeah. He, he broke the alliance. The one thing we know now, if I go put my psychologist hat on, the one thing we know is that people who have a strong therapeutic alliance with their counselor or their therapist do well. If yeah. that alliance is shattered, you know, therapy isn't going to work. A treatment center isn't going to work. You know, if you read Ann Fletcher's book, you know, Inside Rehab. Which I
0: did I couldn't. I can't read those. I did read Gabrielle Glazier's, but I really generally can't read
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I I take, you know, I have have a problem with many of the issues in there. But one of the things I think was important in terms of the message is we got to clean up how we treat people that don't fit with what we think they should
0: do yes right in terms of 12-step in terms
1: of e12-step same thing look i see sponsors doing numbers on sponsors all the time you've probably seen it you've been around you know like i've been around look i've heard sponsors shame people to the point of that person thinking about going back out and never wanting to come back to the program
0: yeah, well, I had a PG sponsor for half a minute where we were doing step work in her car and I casually mentioned I'm on SSRIs and she goes, you're not yeah. sober, get out of the car. Yes.
1: I mean, see there's, an, see, there's an example of it. Yeah. Way too rigid for me. Way too rigid. Well, if SRIs That can kill are working, people. Okay, exactly, look. Exactly. Right. So, you know, so see, that's the part I think we gotta, that's what I'm hoping to do with 12 more stupid things is really helping people learn to hold on to themselves better. Yeah. And not let somebody else define what you need and what's... Now, there's a paradox here. And you know this and I know this. I had to be open to suggestions to try them on. Right. So there has to be some openness. I can't just be defined and say, no, 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 no. But I need to try it on to see, does this work for me? Look, I work a different program than my sponsor, Tom. I've had the same sponsor for 40 Four years now. Wow. We work a different program.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's got a great program. I think I have a solid program, mm-hmm. right, in terms of what's going on in my life and how I feel. He's got a solid program, but they're different. Yeah. You know, we need different things.
0: Well, and that, I think, is the, the issues that the anti-AA brigade uh, has, which I think... This one incredibly solid point that they make is that there is this 12-step philosophy, and it's in the literature that basically says, if you don't do what we do, jails institutions and death. And I, that is not true.
1: That is not true.
0: It is pr- probably true for me. I, I love the 12-step, so it, it's the way so You see,
1: the true. way I translate this in, is to say that, look, if you don't address your problem whether you do it with the steps or not. And that's one of the messages I hope to carry. There's certain things you've got to do to address this. The first thing is you've got to realize if you have this problem, you can't drink or use like other people. Yeah. And if you keep trying to find ways of doing that, you probably are going to end up in jail. You're going to end up dead or something like that. So there has to be some help in being able to look at your attitude towards this problem. Right. So AA does it in their way by saying, hey, admit you're powerless, right? So that addresses this whole issue with the addiction. doesn't have to be that way, but that needs to be addressed, right? Yeah. Got to look at that. If you deny that, no matter what you're doing, it's not going to work. And see, so that's what I'm trying to help people say is that there are certain things that need to happen in recovery, but they don't need to happen in a 12-step. They can happen. People are going to smart recovery right now. That seems to be, you know, speaking to some people. Rational recovery was one of those groups like smart recovery an alternative, right? Where they had, you learned how to deal with what they called the uh, alcoholic voice within you and to deal with that voice so that you wouldn't, and they, instead of they had 24 hours a day, they had the big plan. You'll never drink the rest of your life. So they switched things around, but it was, they got to deal with the addiction first.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so so your your take on harm reduction is that it's
1: uh, it's a ridiculous idea. Hmm. It just look it's if we what we know about the brain says
2: that can't work.
1: Now I'm not saying that somebody that cuts back that that's not helpful for them. I'm not polarizing. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that they're never going to establish their recovery if they don't put the plug in the jug if they don't stop drinking and using. See, so that's the big issue. Now, look, does harm reduction help people? Oh, yeah. And are people's lives better because they've cut it down? My experience is (coughs) uh, nobody can do that forever, though. You know what I mean? They might back off for a period of time. But what I've seen with people, and I've encouraged some of my patients to try it. Because I don't know. It might work for you. I haven't seen it yet.
0: Well, but there are also people who end up seeking recovery sobriety who it turns out are not alcoholics.
1: Well, then, then they may be able to do that. I haven't. Those people don't come to my office. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get people who've tried a lot of other things, and they come to me because they're desperate to try to figure something out.
0: What portion of your uh, clients are uh, addicts?
1: I'd say about a good 75%, yeah. about three-fourths of my practice.
0: So word got out that you're a yeah. guy to go to yeah. if yeah. you're struggling with that.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: And do you only practice in Westlake Village? Do you have another?
1: No, I, I'm not practicing in Westlake. Right now my ma- primary office is in Hermosa Beach, California. Okay. So I've been in the South Bay for a long, long time, since the 80s. So I'm very, very well-networked people know of me, I've worked with two or three generations of families there. So I'm very, very, you know, networked in the South Bay. I'm up in West LA one day a week. And I'm going to probably, because I'm commuting from Westlake to Hermosa Beach, I'm going to probably just have three days down in Hermosa, try to open an office up in Westlake and start to see some clients up there.
0: Mm -hmm. What, um, and how many books have you written?
1: So I have four books Mm -hmm. and a pamphlet that's out. First book was Love Secrets Revealed, and it was sharing all the stuff I learned from my mentor, Doctor Doctor Walter Kempler. Oh yes, so I my was, professional mentor. Right? Yes,
0: I, I printed yeah. out information yeah. about him. Yeah,
1: Walt Kempler is amazing. Um, Genius.
0: Oh, and so the, what I read on your website, which is really interesting, is this idea that we pick a partner to quote grind against. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, what I was wondering about that is. You know, if we're all trying to redo the trauma that happened under, you know, when we were under the age of twelve or fifteen or whatever it is, I I know plenty of people, self included, who would who would seek partners in this in this ridiculous idea that we could redo it right. Yeah. And and pick partners who were not appropriate or not available, but you're talking about something else.
1: I'm talking about something that's it's related to what you're talking about, but look. No matter what happens, whether you are traumatized or not, your development is incomplete. Your family could only teach you what they know.
2: Mm-hmm. It's never enough. Mm-hmm.
1: So whether you got traumatized in that or not, you're still going to leave your family needing to continue to grow and develop. Mm-hmm. In fact, the psychological imperative that governs me, governs you, is our movement towards be coming whole,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right, mm-hmm. of being the best we can be, of realizing our potential. Maslow called it the, f- the growth force, self-actualization, mm-hmm. right? So that's in each of us. So what I say, it's a variation on what you just said, I say we pick someone who's going to cause us a certain kind of trouble.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in that trouble, so that trouble doesn't mean something's wrong, that trouble means something's right, mm-hmm. because relationships are the best way to grow a person. Right. The, the the struggle that goes on, right, really becomes the fire and that forges um, your person and your character. So the trouble I have is always going to be at the edge of my competence and my abilities. So let's say that we're in a relationship and I'm stuck in people-pleasing. Mm-hmm. And what comes up with us is that I'm not asking for some of the things I want and I'm getting mad at you,
2: Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm.
1: So my growth is learning how to stand up for what I want. Well, if you don't enable me and Mm -hmm. try to anticipate all my needs and you're doing your thing, you know, I might sit there first and say, God, she is such a selfish, you know, person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She's not attending to me at all. But then if I'm really doing the work, I got to say, how come I'm not asking her for what I want? How do I find my voice? See, so that's what I'm saying, is that in a relationship, you're going to have opportunities to take the next step in your development. That doesn't mean that relationship is something you should hold on to the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. But it means that there is an opportunity, no matter what it is, for you to grow Mm -hmm. and for you to develop these parts of you that are undeveloped.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you believe, you know, I know we talked about therapy is crucial. Um, Somebody should be in therapy for the rest of the time oh, they're sober? No,
1: no, no, I haven't. I do believe there's times, you know, to go in therapy for a period of time. A lot of people come and see me for a period, sometimes for just a few sessions. Sometimes people come in for a couple years, mm-hmm. and then they take a break, and then they hit another rough spot, and they mm-hmm. come back. See, mm-hmm. what the model we're starting to get to in understanding what needs to happen in treatment is this chronic disease model. So, look, I have asthma. Mm-hmm. I haven't taken any Advair today. I haven't done anything to manage my asthma. I'm in a pretty good place today. Mm -hmm. About five weeks ago when I was moving and stressed out, my asthma was kicking in. Mm -hmm. I needed to take my medication. Mm -hmm. So we need different things depending on what's going on in our lives. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of recovery I want people to put together. Be responsive to what's happening in your life and attend to what you need. So sometimes you're going to need to get your butt in and do some work. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't need to. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need to be going to maybe seven meetings a week. There may be times when you don't need to go to any meeting. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it doesn't mean you're not in recovery because recovery is not going to meetings or, or going to meetings. It's an attitude you have in a way that you're living your life. Mm-hmm. And see, that's the important thing is that we somehow internalize that what I say to everybody, in the beginning, the program worked me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or pro, I worked the program. Then the transition came. Right. Now the program works me. Right. If I'm dishonest with you, I can't live with myself. I got to come and clean it up. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. it just doesn't work. Before, somebody had to tell me, hey, you were dishonest. You better go clean that up. Yeah. Doesn't happen anymore. I know yeah. I need to clean it up now.
0: And what about these people that, you know, I knew people when I was new who were amazing and I could see the freedom that you saw in Tom, and then they stayed, they're still sober and there's just this hatred and yeah. there's this, That see that. That's,
1: see, that's where they're not staying in touch with their experience. Yeah. Because, see, one of the important ingredients, I think, in recovery is being able to tolerate looking at who you're not yet. And being able to be honest with yourself about, you know, I've got 40 years, but I still need to clean this thing up. I've got 44 years. I still find myself passive in certain areas, especially in my marriage with Mm -hmm. my wife, Mm -hmm. in terms of where I don't support myself to go after what I want. Mm -hmm. So, see, those are the things that at 44 years, I'm looking at that and wanting to look at it and wanting to see what I can do right to start to fulfill my life rather Mm -hmm. than to sit there and hope somebody's going to figure this out now there's not a lot of me that's passive anymore but there's some areas where i am that's my issue Mm -hmm. but see we got to tolerate seeing those things Mm -hmm. and then being able to support ourselves and working on it without me shaming myself and say oh look at what a terrible person you are well i'm not going to go get help if i feel ashamed of it
0: right right do you wouldn't would you say that one of the best uh things that can therefore be a very low tolerance for discomfort emotional discomfort it can be because it gets it can drive you into trying to do stuff
1: to look for something new right on you know this is where we learn pain becomes our friend not our enemy
0: yeah i mean i know a lot of people i will say men who are who are seem to be comfortable yeah. wallowing in their yeah. misery. Yeah. And I don't, I don't relate to that.
1: No, listen, I think that there's a lot of what we call toxic rules that men have um, swallowed whole. We call it introjected. Mm-hmm. So if I introject something, I take an idea, and I believe it completely without ever examining, does this idea make sense for me? You mm-hmm. follow me? Yeah. That's an introjection introjections are really toxic Mm -hmm. because you're not in it right so you got to take that idea and chew it up and say these are the parts of that idea that fit for me and are going to help me and thrive in my life and these are the parts of the idea that don't what do we tell people going to meetings take what you need
0: and leave
1: the rest rest. so we're asking people to be active in their experience in recovery but we don't give them the tools because then we say well, if you're not following directions, you obviously don't want to do what? Get well.
0: Right, right.
1: Instead of saying, what is it about this idea that doesn't fit well for you? Let's talk about it and see where, what might work better for you. But see, that's a level of sophistication. I don't want to put that on sponsors and stuff like that. But yeah. see, that's where we got to get to in terms of our consciousness. Because Bill had that. Bill didn't think we need, we were supposed to lay our ideas about, uh, let's say, our ideas about God on someone else. Yeah, right that we had to be open to let that person discover and find whatever higher power they needed to find in their life and that it didn't need to be the one that we thought they needed well
0: isn't is isn't the aa history that there was that they did think they they did think you, it had to be god and then that guy came in and said, it needs to be God as you understand him.
1: Because, Bill also could appreciate that because of his experience in the Oxford group. See, mm-hmm. the Oxford group was very Christian. And if you didn't embrace Jesus, then you weren't going to get well. Right. And it didn't work for Bill.
2: Right. So
1: he knew there had to be something that there was more tolerance. Right. That there was more possibilities. What I would say, there had to be something less rigid.
0: Yeah. So,
1: yeah, if you look at the original manuscript, which they've published now... I
0: have it. I couldn't... I I thought I'd read through it. But if you just
1: pick up a few pages and look at it, you see what they did is they tried to back off on the rigidity, thankfully. Had it been rigid, I would have been too... I couldn't have... It wouldn't have worked for me. Mm
0: -hmm. I
1: would have been too defiant.
2: Mm
0: Mm-hmm. well, what? Oh, no, we still have more time. Um, what I was going to say before this is going back is this idea that we were talking about, about like that counselor that I talked about at Meadows um there can be sponsors who are like that. Yes. And I think a lot of those people who go on these anti-AA crusades, what they will not mention in their crusade is that they tried AA and it, quote, didn't work yeah. because there were personalities. Yes. I, ha- I feel grateful all the time that I stumbled into a room where I never encountered that. But that was luck. Yes.
1: It's interesting because... I had a, you know, as I mentioned before, I've gone on and I did a review on Ann Fletcher's book on Amazon, and I gave it one star. I'm going to probably go back in and change that at some point. But I'm pretty polarized with it because I felt it was way too heavy-handed in Mm -hmm. one direction. Now, the truth of it is when you read it, it's more balanced than I think people realize. Mm -hmm. But there was one person who really came after me and was attacking me, mm-hmm. and, and I invited that person to share with me their experience. I didn't want to do it in a public forum, but send me a personal email, and let's talk about what happened. And it was just this. See, they had a bad experience, yeah. and they blamed the other person for what they didn't know how to do. They
0: blamed AA for what yeah, they didn't
1: exactly. know how to do. They didn't know how to hold on to themselves. And they were expecting that other person. This, it was a, a treatment program. It was a counselor who was lame, who was really, I think, poorly trained. Oh, and it was maybe a had, counselor
0: that you were writing No,
1: about. no. Yeah, That this person had an experience in a treatment center. Okay, yeah, yeah. So they went to treatment. This counselor totally polarized with them, mm-hmm. faulted them, blamed them, says, you don't want to get well totally alienated this mm-hmm, client, mm-hmm. right? Like, similar to what your experience, mm-hmm. maybe not as, you know, this was more extreme than I think you had, but I talked to him about it. I said, look, you know, you can blame them, but why don't you look at what you couldn't do at that time? Right. Let's look at what, what how you didn't hold on to yourself, because had you hold on to yourself, you wouldn't be reacting to this other person this way. And so we spent some time going back and forth, trying to help him unpack the experience mm-hmm. that he was having. Now, a good therapist would have saw your reaction, and instead of overriding you and cha- telling you to go into treatment, they would say, look, I can see that when I talk to you this way. It doesn't fit for you. Let's find out what's going on. Maybe I've missed you, mm-hmm. and I wanna—I don't want to miss you. Mm-hmm. You see, so they would own the mistake.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How many counselors own their mistakes?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, and this is related, is that once I, you know, got sober and my life was changed as a result of AA, um, I got into this way of thinking. I still have it a little bit, which is God is speaking to me through other people. Yes. So whatever suggestions are coming along, I'm meant to follow.
2: Yes.
0: And you could say I'm not holding on to myself, but I had an amazing therapist at the time, and she was the one who suggested Meadows. And so I come back from it, and I go, I had this horrible experience. Um, and she was shocked. And she said, I'm, you know, I'm going to reach out to this counselor. And she was so, quote, on my side. And I, and I was so impressed with how she admitted that it had been a mistake. Yep. And then she talked to him. And this amazing woman, who I still know today, came back and was like on his side. Wow. And, in, and it was so interesting because she had already admitted fault, and I just sort of, I don't know, I was like, yeah. you know, two therapists con- connecting, like, what happened yeah. in that conversation?
1: That's very interesting, isn't it, yeah. A, that, that, yeah, somehow she didn't, see, I hold that counselor responsible for the breach of the connection to you, yeah. because that person wasn't meeting you where you were at, Yeah, that wasn't for you, Yeah, look, to me, I never hand somebody a bat and say, beat the chair, but if you were in the middle of your anger. Right. And see, they were a better therapist. They would have then handed it to you at the right time, and you would want it. Yeah. But doing it the way they did felt artificial for you because you weren't there.
0: Yeah. I mean, I sort of felt like I've been dealing with my rage towards my dad since I was 18. It's somewhat, you know, it's alleviated so much.
1: Right. And see, what I've always said in in this, I go into this a lot in 12 Smart Things. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is all about emotional sobriety. If I'm upset, then what's underneath it is some unenforceable rule that I have about how you're supposed to behave. Mm -hmm. And that rule is connected to my unhealthy dependence on you. Mm -hmm. So I have the rule that says you have to behave this way for me to feel okay. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do it, then I'm mad at you.
2: Mm hmm Mm-hmm. and
1: see that's what we call expectations are what premeditated resentments, resentments you've heard that, that right you've yeah. heard that yeah. in in meetings a lot so see that's what i would want to unpack with someone mm-hmm. is to help them get to the unenforceable rule that is generating the resentment or their anger or their pain mm-hmm. or whatever it is
0: mm-hmm. which i agree with you that that's crucial and that's why the fourth step is so So life-changing out of all of them i think even more than the first step i say fourth is the one that just powerful
1: isn't it to to take a look at yourself and to to be able to to tolerate right what you're going to see who you're not yeah you know i love the way bill says it he says you have to look at who you're not to become what you can be
0: yeah, I is that mean, the uh, book.
1: Yeah, but I, I paraphrase it a yeah. little bit. But, but isn't it but it's but he says it we have to we have to own wh- who we've been or what we've done in order to become what we can be. Yeah. See, so it's it's a variation on that, but it's it's there's a lot of wisdom in it. See, in in Gestalt therapy, we have what's called the paradoxical theory of change. So what it means is that you change when you own what's going on, not when you try to be someone you're not. So, if I have this disease, which I do, That makes it impossible for me to control my drinking over any extended period of time. If I keep trying to be in control of something I'm out of control over, I'll never change. Mm -hmm. That's why the first step works. Because as soon as you accept your powerlessness, you find power.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Same thing. If I'm a liar... Where I start to get honest is by owning that I'm a liar. Mm
2: -hmm, I can't
1: mm -hmm. just get honest. Mm -hmm. I've got to own that I lie and take a look at it, what it means to me. So the person that's trying to control, they have to unpack, how come I can't accept this idea that I'm powerless Mm -hmm. now? There's a lot of reasons for that, right? Who the hell wants to be powerless? Right. Our society doesn't, you know, applaud Enforce somebody, exactly, right? Hey, yeah. Oh, you're powerless. Wonderful. Let's go spend some time together.
0: Yeah. You know,
1: our society is about power and it's about achievement. It's about success. And
0: Yeah. I mean, and it is the great irony and, you know, the point that all those anti-AA crusaders will use is like powerlessness. Like they don't get that powerlessness yeah. is power.
1: They don't it, see how it empowers somebody.
0: Well, and people don't get that losing yeah. an argument is winning. I
1: know. So you you're know? right on. But you know, not only do they not get it, I do, I go train a lot of mental health professionals. They are so critical of the steps because they think the steps promote irresponsibility.
0: It's so crazy. I mean, I mean, think about
1: it. Are you more responsible than you've ever been? Of
0: course. Right. And like that cursory glance at 12-step and then the, the right they have to sort of tear it apart. And I mean, I think one of the issues that is inescapable is that I don't think you can understand 12-step yeah. if you're not trying to be if, sober. What are things, one of the
1: things that I'm very happy about in my most recent book, which was 12 Hidden Rewards of Making Amends first part of that book is all about the therapeutic value of the steps so one of the talks i give to mental health professionals is help them see the psychological forces that are operating in the steps it is grounded in good therapy
0: yeah
1: i am telling you yeah and so when they see it they can start to look at it from a different point of view instead of thinking oh that's a religious program because god's mentioned right right that just throws a you know a psychologist off big time yeah but
0: threatens what they do it
1: totally threatens what they do yeah there's such a split between spirituality and psychology which is so sad now some groups have tried to put it together transpersonal psychology okay you know different things like that but it's still in the mainstream there's a terrible misunderstanding of what happens with the steps in the mental health profession. yeah,
0: yeah. And, and
1: amongst other people too
0: but it's changing it is you know
1: Thankfully.
0: Um, And, you know, Dr. Drew has uh, talked about how in medical school, it's actually finally getting addressed in more than like a lecture or whatever it's been.
1: That's so good, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Really is. I agree
1: with that. I'm so glad for that.
0: Um, Okay, I wanted to answer a question with you. I get sent these questions periodically, and then I will answer them. And look, we got an expert in the house. Um, So this is a guy who has, Jonathan, who's been like a long-time sort of, you know, online friend. Um, And he wrote, um, I had a drug dream. Happens about twice a year. Does anyone else go through this? Sometimes in the dreams I'm straight up using. Sometimes the dream is just about drugs. Uh, Sometimes I'm holding them. Okay, you get the idea. Uh, now he says, may, "Okay, is that okay? I mean, it's not a relapse if I'm dreaming. Dreaming, even if I felt it felt real and I enjoyed it. What do you have to say?"
1: Well, so his, what he's questioning is, he heading for trouble because he liked the experience he had in that dream. Right. And what I would say if I was, if I was, if Jonathan was in a session with me, I'd say, let's work on your dream for a minute. So here's a secret in terms of unraveling what happens in a dream. Every part of the dream is a different part of you. Mm -hmm. So what I have the person do is tell the dream from different points of view. So I have him tell it from his point of view. Then I have him become the drug and tell it from the drug's point of view. I have him tell the dream from every different object that's in the dream from that point of view. What I'm looking for is any areas where there's conflict between him and different parts of the dream. So what I then do is now I have him dialogue like we were doing that dialogue earlier, yeah, yeah. the different parts of dreams. dream. So let's say it's him and the drug, mm-hmm. and he might be saying, you know, God, I don't know what to make with, of you. You know, you've come in, you make me feel good, I pushed you away for a long time, and now you're coming into me. Now, what it may be is that there's a part of Jonathan that he's starting to connect to that hasn't been okay to connect to. That's making him feel better, and he doesn't know how to integrate that into his personality. Do you see what's happening? Yeah, yeah. See, I, I would, that would be my. See, I, I don't want to interpret it, right? Because I want people to figure it out themselves. But if you ask me what I think is going on, there's a part of him that's starting to come into his life that he likes, that he feels good about, but he doesn't know what to do with it yet, and he doesn't know where to put it, doesn't know how to integrate it into the rest of his personality. So see, if that was it, then we'd work on that. You see what I mean?
0: That's, that's an amazingly optimistic interpretation, too. I mean, I yes, love it. it is. <laughs> um, you know, I, you, know I, you have had drug and alcohol dreams, yes. I would imagine. Yeah. Um, I always take them as like, oh, good, you know, the detritus of my thoughts are being processed through my dreams, and, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, if you're in a lot of meetings, yeah. that can happen. You're and thinking I- about drugs and alcohol. Um, I never take it as um, a dangerous thing. Yeah. Ever. That's me. Yeah. And um, I,
1: I don't, you know, that's what I said. For yeah. him, I'm I'm just, I don't know Jonathan, but that's the hit I get off of it. Yeah. And what I'm always looking for is something like that. So you have also seen another part of my work. I'm always looking for the positive intention in yeah. our behavior. Yeah. Because it's always there. Yeah. And see, we are much too harsh and critical of ourselves. Oh, yeah. That we are... We are There's forces in us that are moving towards our growth and development that we don't recognize all the time. Right. And I want people to be aware of that so that they can start to appreciate themselves because we're amazing you're amazing I love talking to you thank by the way.
0: you I love talking I, to you I was just I, you know I escaped the moment and I was like god this is a good one
1: I was just thinking about yeah. that
0: I was only half listening to you because I was yeah. thinking that no
1: but it's happens. I love your energy see you're so here I mean people can't see how we look at each other and well it's kind content. of made
0: me uncomfortable because you are totally an eye to eye person yeah. and I'm like yeah. shit he's gonna know if I look away that, way, <laughs> that yeah, like I'm that. uncomfortable and
1: then he's gonna <laughs> thoughts about that yeah. but see, see look at how real you are about that yeah and, and transparent and vulnerable yeah are. see that's what i love talking to you because you're so here with me that's see awesome. we're totally here i yeah. mean we're in this you have this wonderful office in this other wonderful office yes but there's all this other stuff going on most of the time i'm not aware of anything yeah except you
0: yeah in yeah. your
1: eyes and talking to you in your mouth and your words and the tone of your voice and
0: it's interesting, we have to wrap up, but I can't stop talking to you. I have this, one of my sort of you know, self-hating uh, things that goes through my head is um, you're not present, you're not listening, and I've started, I went through this period like two months ago where I started to be so conscious in my mm-hmm. conversations of how I wasn't listening, and I finally took it as progress because there was awareness, and it yes. used to just be waiting for the person to finish talking so that I could talk. I had no awareness that I wasn't listening.
1: Yeah. See, See, that's what I'm talking about with you is your awareness of what you're doing and owning it. Yeah. See, that's the part that I want people to get in here. That's how we grow.
0: Yeah.
1: Is not to be where we think we should be, but to be where you're at and become aware of it. Right. By doing that, then you start to move to the next thing of being more present.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But
1: you can't jump over that step.
0: Yeah, and it makes people super uncomfortable, and yeah. they don't like yeah. it, and they quit, and you yeah. know, all that stuff. That's right. Um, okay, we have to wrap up. People can reach you on your website, Yep. Dr. Alan Berger, Allen Berger, A L L E N
1: B E R G R. Website is www.abphd.com.
0: What? That's your website? Yeah,
1: abphd.com. And then you can also send me an email at abphd at msn.com. And do you,
0: you have time to answer those? Oh, yeah. I, I
1: try to answer every, sometimes it takes a few days. Mm-hmm. You know, if anybody needs to reach me for any reason, my phone number is 818-584-4795. Wow. So you can also give me a call and I'll do my best to get back to you as soon as I can.
0: And um, you got room in your practice for new clients, in my I'm,
1: I'm probably got about a one to two week waiting list right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so depending on your flexibility, if somebody's flexible, I can typically work them in. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, I'm in that process of writing right now. So yeah. I'm starting to... The deadline's coming up in October to have the book ready, and so I'm now starting to put some hours aside every day mm-hmm. to sit down and focus on that but still i've i've <coughs> I see about forty patients a week or if not more
0: and uh, all your books are available on Amazon
1: yes, that's the best place to get them. that's where you're going to get the best price yeah. Okay. Now, I also got some great CDs. Let me just say that on my website. A lot of great CDs. You can go on iTunes. You can download my CD on Unpacking Bill Wilson's Letter, which is on emotional sobriety. That is a great... That is to me, one of my best talks. But on my website, I've got several other audio CDs that if you want something to throw in your car, listen to when you're driving to a meeting or driving home from work or whatever, they're great things. In fact, I'll get you a, a collection of them. Oh, so I love it. Listen.
0: So yeah, I'll go download the, the yeah, unpacking, I, I, you'll, unpacking you'll, letter.
1: You'll like Bill's letter a lot. Is you're that the, like
0: a full hour of you unpacking it? It's a full
1: it? hour of going through that letter that was published in the 1958 Grapevine, which that letter, outside of the big book in a 12 and 12, Go and read the letter you can get the pdf on on the internet type in bill wilson uh the next frontier emotional sobriety and you'll see the pdf of it read it it's so powerful it's so good and i unpack it in that program that's on itunes
0: yeah okay that's that's a must listen and you guys you're already listening to something you got on itunes or soundcloud or whatever so that's it you know how to download yeah,
1: they do know how to download it.
0: um okay dr berger thank you so so much you, this has been fantastic that was a great episode right i mean I loved it, but I also liked it because it gets into complimenting me in the end. Did you hear that? Yeah, I'm working on my narcissism, guys. You know that. Anyway, this was After Party Pod with Dr. Alan Berger. Thank you for listening. See you next time.